Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Trade talks are continuing between the U.S. and China as we head closer to the March deadline. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive's Broker Studios, Ann Stevenson Yang, co-founder and research director at J Capital Research, also a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. And thank you so much for being here today. Uh, let's just start with a state of play. Where are we in the trade negotiations between the U.S. and China? To be honest, it looks like the U.S. is just about to capitulate. Um, but we're in the in, in the last uh, last lap. Wait, 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 wait. What? It looks like the U.S. is about to capitulate. How so? Uh, you know, March was the uh, was was the delayed date for the implementation of the higher tariffs. Should should China not agree to a number of conditions, the conditions that were set for China were conditions that really could not be made be, be met. Uh, they were too vague, too broad. They meant basic restructuring of the economy and the political system. And uh, I think that Trump and his administration don't really want to walk off that ledge. And so they're preparing to, uh, to find a face-saving method to back down. What do you think that face-saving method is in terms of backing down? Who knows? Last time it was fentanyl, which came right out of left field. So it could be anything this time. How about some of the more more substantive issues like technology and, and intellectual property, are any of those really tough topics going to be addressed? Look, those are the issues that really need to be addressed. The question is how. So the U.S. has been going around to allies and asking them to uh, to drop Huawei from the from the 5G network construction, and that could actually happen. There's a meeting in uh, in Spain of the EU uh, Committee on GSM Technologies at the end of the month where people are going to discuss that. I'm just wondering Huawei. We, Huawei, we were talking about the, uh, the, the charges that the U.S. levied against Huawei uh, and, and how this would be read politically. The U.S. taking the stance this is a completely separate legal action that has nothing to do with trade negotiations. Originally, China seemed to make noise saying that the, you know this is absolutely part of trade negotiations. We're not buying the U.S.'s line. But recently, they've gone a little dark on that. What's the latest there? They've gone a d little dark on that, but they're still holding in detention three Canadians uh, as really naked leverage against Canada in hopes that Canada will not extradite uh, Hmong to the United States. And this, so, it, so it really is clearly viewed in China. And all of the press coverage in Global Times and so forth is all about how, how Hmong is a pawn. So... Are we, is the Huawei situation, i.e., you mentioned Barcelona, maybe, you know, asking our European uh, countries not to use that technology, are we creating a kind of a bifurcated technology market where the Chinese companies will supply Belt and Road countries and Western companies will supply Western technologies? And the reason I ask that is I'm thinking about the global 5G build out and rollout is going to be the next mega trend in tech spending. I wonder if we're creating kind of a, is a segregated market being developed? Yeah, I think of it as sort of a bamboo technology curtain. It's it's an interesting thing because the 5G network is the thing that will really uh, manage uh, smart appliances, self-driving cars, uh, power networks, all of those things, and um, and you can imagine some of the security 
issues that could arise from that. And so uh, excluding uh, Huawei and ZTE and, and Chinese uh, providers from that network, I think, is a key goal of the United States right now. And you can, you can understand why, but it would create a very interesting bifurcation, yes. So we're speaking with Ann Stevenson Yang, co-founder and research director at J Capital Research, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. We're talking about China and U.S. and U.S. relations, as well as the build out of 5G, which is sort of integral in this whole issue, as we've been talking about uh, for the past few weeks. How does the slowdown in China's economy affect the 5G build out plan, if at all? Well, I, th- I think what it really affects is the uh, is the view internationally by investors of China. Uh, formerly, you had uh, companies like like Cisco, which sued Huawei back in 2003. Motorola, which sued Huawei, and I think it was 2010. Uh, you had them come to settlements because they were concerned about being shut out of the market. I think that there's much less of that concern now, and more of a uh, more of a combative stance. So the U.S. technology companies, again, my, my, my sense would be, boy, Ch- China's a huge market to sell into on the one hand. On the other hand, we need some protection from China. So what are we hearing from Silicon Valley and some of the leaders about how they would like to see policy develop? You know, they've been surprisingly quiet. They used to be really strong supporters of uh, accommodation with China, uh, trying not to, uh, to, to, to make these issues uh, tremendously public, trying not to embarrass China. Now you find that they're very quiet. So you said that, if I'm understanding you correctly, that U.S. companies are becoming more combative and international companies are becoming more combative when negotiating with Chinese tech giants. Uh, first of all, how is this manifesting, and why does the slowdown give them that sort of uh, confidence? Well, because the slowdown suggests that uh, that the market is really not quite as promising as they thought, and that uh, they may not, after all, build billion or two billion dollar businesses in China, and therefore they're able to defend their interests, or you know, the, in, in a more strident manner. Does does China still need our technology, or have they developed? skills and core technology, whether it's chips or software or hardware, they really don't need us or Western technology as much as they used to? Well, apparently they do. I mean, the, the thing that struck me, really bowled me over about the Huawei indictment, uh, the Washington State indictment, uh, for its uh, attempt to, to, to uh, steal TAPI technology from T-Mobile, was how, you know, the, the U.S., the, the North American market is huge for Huawei, and its reputation in North America is also really important. So the idea that they would risk all these things in order to steal a technology that's really kind of humdrum, and that, that a lot of other companies had developed in different ways um, is really kind of stunning and suggests that that there's been some myth-making about Huawei's capabilities. Do you think there's been myth-making overall in terms of China's technological prowess? Look, I do. I mean, this is not to say at all that, uh, that, that ex- you know, extremely extreme competence doesn't exist in China's tech industry and that they're not inventing things all the time. But the fact is that the companies that get to scale and manage to, uh, uh, to achieve big sales are not the companies that are innovative. You can't do that in China's economy. Ann Stevenson-Yang, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Ann Stevenson-Yang, co-founder and research director at J Capital Research, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, uh, and uh, she is normally based in Washington, D.C. and Hong Kong, but joining us here in our 1130 studios. 
It is the end of an era. Bill Gross, the erstwhile uh, Bond king of Pimco, who went to Janice, said he was retiring after uh, a period of mixed performance. If you want to hear what he had to say, let's listen in on Bill Gross in his own words, speaking with Bloomberg's Tom Keen earlier this morning about his performance. You know, I look back on it uh, and the performance on the unconstrained fund in the past four years with Janice is, uh, has been uh, unsatisfactory, no doubt, but still positively um, uh, positive in normal and nominal terms. Joining us now in our uh, Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Peggy Collins, investing team leader for Bloomberg News. Uh, Peggy, really interesting. He had an amazing run at PIMCO a falling out in 2014, went to Janice. Since then, his performance, highly underwhelming. That's right. And also, not a lot of money followed him to Janice. So when he left, I remember the morning he left PIMCO, September 2014, people were shocked. We were scrambling around the newsroom, trying to put the story out fast. And he basically, at that time, jumped to Janice, where he had been longtime friends with Dick Weil, who was running Janice at the time out of Colorado. A couple years later, Janice merged with Henderson Group in London, and so now it's a big London-based firm that he's a part of. But Bill Gross maintained kind of a solo act um, in Newport Beach for a long time um, over the last few years, and we've just seen the assets in the fund really deplete. They dipped below $1 billion at the end of last year, and his performance, as you said, has really lagged about uh, less than 1% over the annualized four years. So it's been it's been a struggle since he left PIMCO. So Peggy, is this a, yet another example in the decline of the active manager? I will say it is it is a signal in terms of how difficult it is to be an active manager. Um, I think in general, bond funds have had fewer outflows than equity funds. We've really seen a lot of investors pour into particularly U.S. stock funds on the passive side rather than active. But bond fund managers, in part because there's not as much of a delta between the expense ratios on bond funds, passive or active, they have held up somewhat. But to your point, it is an indication of how hard it can be to do well in an active fund. It's interesting because uh, he was known as a bond king, the bond king. Is there another bond king that has taken Bill Gross's place? You know, I think it's hard to say right now. I mean, he certainly was the person who built up the bond industry in terms of the total return fund at PIMCO. PIMCO became the world's largest um, mutual fund manager while he was there. It reached uh, $300 billion in assets by 2013 at the peak. So I think he really became the face of bond funds and investing. And he was on TV a lot. He did investor letters. Tons of people had the total return fund at PIMCO in their 401k plans. But I don't think we have someone to that degree, and in part because it was something new at the time. In hindsight, Peggy, what what is probably the call here about what happened to Bill Gross in terms of performance? He had such a good run there, as you mentioned. Then the most more recent performance has been underwhelming at best. Did he just did the market just kind of move away from him? Did he just miss the evolution of the fixed income market? I think one of the things that may have happened was he changed his strategy. And he noted this today to Tom Keen on the interview with Bloomberg Radio and TV that he wished in some ways that he might have stuck with his total return strategy, which he really pioneered a bit more and been a little bit more constrained. Lisa, you know these funds really well, but these unconstrained bond funds, which Bill Gross ran one at Janus, they were really on vogue after the financial crisis. And lots of bond managers said, they're going to be the greatest thing because we can go anywhere. And when interest rates start to rise, we'll be able to move and groove 
prove. <laughs> and well, it turned out to be a little bit more difficult than that. They had higher fees than other bond funds. And the whole argument was predicated on this idea of rising rates, of rising benchmark yields, which Bill Gross described to. He thought that, you know, he shorted uh, 10-year treasuries when the yields were three, three and a half percent. That was not right. Uh, but I do have to wonder, you know, how much of the active model is broken. Bill Gross in particular, uh, you know, homing in on hedge funds and saying that that model is broken. Take a listen to what he had to say. Obviously, the hedge fund concept suggested long and short, but it was really one in which uh, managers took a lot of risk. Yes. And so when you speak to diversification, you know, perhaps most of those uh, hedge funds were non-diversified in terms of the risk that they were taking. They were taking levered risk and still are. So he was uh, talking about hedge funds, Bill Gross, uh, this morning in a conversation with Bloomberg's Tom Keene. Of course, he himself also took unlevered risk, uh, but in mutual fund format. Right. And again, on this uncontrained bond fund, they had a lot more latitude versus the total return fund that had a lot had to stay more constrained and take more measured risks. So when you have the ability to take big risks, sometimes it goes very well and sometimes it goes very sharply down the other way. And we saw Bill Gross's fund in the spring of last year really take a dive on a couple of bad bets that he had made in relation to the German bonds. So and I think on hedge funds, you know, he makes a good point that a lot of We've seen a lot of the hedge funds kind of herd together into long bets with with uh, the FANG stocks. And then when things turn the other way, kind of they go go in tandem downwards. So I think his point is made. But I do think he, you know, he struggled over the last few years. We saw a lot of investor redemptions. He did say on the interview today on Bloomberg Radio and TV that he believes his legacy stands because for his over his four decade, more than four decade career uh, in the investing market, he certainly had great returns at PIMCO. Peggy Collins, thank you very much for bringing us up to date on the really momentous news in the fixed income world here. Peggy Collins, investing team leader, Bloomberg News, joining us live in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And I think I have to agree with with Peggy that and with Bill that, you know, over his 40 year career, just outstanding performance uh, for his uh, investors in the fixed income market. Uh, and uh, he clearly was the bond king. You know, if we want to take a look at what's going on with the global economy, there is no better place to look than the shipping industry. And so we are very lucky to have Ian Weber with us here, Chief Executive Officer of Global Ship Lease, normally based in London, but here with us in our New York studios today. Uh, global Ship Lease actually just merged with Poseidon Containers late last year, uh, now has $1.3 billion worth of ships, as well as 38 modern, uh, the fleet of 38. Uh, so Ian, thank you so much for being here. Do you think the concern from your perspective of seeing ships in the water, the concern about trade tensions has been overplayed or underblown? Firstly, thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's good to be here again. Um, yeah, tra trade wars and tariffs and, and, uh, and, and the uncertainty that that creates, never good for business, um, but it does create opportunities. Now, for, for my business, you have to take a step back and look at the global container fleet and look at very big ships and then the rest, medium-sized and smaller. The very big ships are the ones that are deployed on trades between China and North America and China and Europe. They're the ones that are going to be most affected directly by tariffs and trade wars, at least until something is resolved. The mid-sized and smaller fleet, 
is out with that. That's 70% of global container trade. That's where my company, Global Ship Lease, is, is focused. There'll be an indirect effect, of course, uh, but the direct effect on, on global trade flows for us, uh, we expect to be negligible. That's interesting when you, you raise that 70% number, because when I think of global shipping, I think of the big monster container ships sitting in the harbor in Singapore or mm -hmm. off, you know, in Bayonne, New Jersey, getting loaded and offloaded, these monster things. But 70% of global trade is with the medium and uh, smaller ships, as you say. What are the drivers of that business if it isn't the global trade that we're talking about, China, Europe, China, U.S.? Local, local economies. The, these are trade lanes that connect... Uh, the Indian subcontinent and Australasia, uh, Australasia and South America, North America and South America, Europe and South America. So it's ev everything else, uh, and it's it's consumer products, it's semi-manufactured products, it's raw materials, it's frozen lamb, it's butter, it's wine, it's water, it's beer, it's shoes. It's all of these things that emerging economies particularly need. Okay, so what changes have you seen in the past six months that uh, sort of are indicative of either the global economy or the changing uh, trade routes emerging from the tension. Continued growth in demand in these non-main lane trades, the 70%. So we've got 3 or 4% demand growth. Uh, Where is it stemming from in particular? It, it's broadly spread. So, you know, it, it, it's across the whole world, which is great because our ships are built to be able to be deployed around the world. On, on the other side of the occasion, the supply side, the order book, ships that are contracted to be built for mid-sized and smaller container ships is is tiny in fact the supply of mid-sized and, and smaller ships has contracted over the last half a dozen years so we've got demand growth and supply contraction which will lead to increase in price charter rates for us rental income and ultimately asset values so our ships that are coming open in the market later this year into 2020 we're hoping to renew at higher rates driven by these economic fundamentals what are you doing with your fleet right now? Uh, Lisa mentioned 38 uh, ships, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, are you adding to the fleet? How do you think about that capital expenditure as it relates to the maybe the, the visibility you may have on your f uh, upcoming business? Sure. I mean, we've just doubled the size of the fleet. You were kind enough to observe that. Um, we've reduced the average age of the vessels. We've improved the quality of the ships. It, it's, it's a great transaction more than doubling the size of, of, of the business. Going forward, we still see opportunities to add selectively uh, to the fleet, second-hand vessels, you know, five, ten-year-old vessels with a charter, with a rental stream attached to it. When asset values are still relatively low, we're still, it's a cyclical industry, we're still at the bottom of the cycle, uh, and therefore there are good investment opportunities for those who have the appetite and the capital, which, which we do. How does the growth that you're seeing right now in demand compare to the past few years? Uh, it's it's steady. I mean, it, it fluctuates from year to year. We are cyclical. Not every trade lane is going gangbusters all at the same time. There are there are more prosperous economies and less prosperous. But on average, well, three or four percent. The reason why I ask is because people are talking about this sort of global deceleration. I'm just wondering if your empirical evidence bears that out. Really difficult to tell. Um, but with no new ships being built in our sector. Um, and positive demand growth, even if it's 3% rather than 4%, then that's a great position for us to be in. So your company, it's interesting, you you own the ships and then you lease them to the large, larger container ship companies, that's the right. Maris, the CMAs of, of mm -hmm. the world. Um, so I would, send, I, would get a, I would sense that you would probably be a very, you know, a high delta indicator to what is really going on in terms of demand, in terms of global shipping. So do you, 
how, what's the average tenure of your contract? Do you have contracts rolling over? And what can you tell us about kind of the renegotiation rates you're currently seeing? Um, sure. I mean, if you were renewing a ship in today's market, you'd be looking at a new lease, a new charter of six, nine, 12, maybe 18 months, relatively short term, which is fine by us because we expect rates to continue to rise. So we'll then release again in an improving market. But we have a mixture of long and short term charters. Uh, we have $750 million of contracted revenue. On average, our charters run for two and a half years. So we've got a great mixture of a bedrock of, uh, of cash flow um, and then some short-term charters renewing soon that we hope to be able to, to renew and improve market. So the supply-demand dynamic really favors you in terms of being able to raise rates for the Maersks of the world. How much do they push back at a time when people all talk about margin compression, uh, you know, inflation around the edges and the inability to pass that along to consumers? Oh, it's a, it's a tough negotiation. You know, you've got a buyer and a seller and you're trying to come up with a price. Um, our, our industry is very liquid, however. Um, there are professional shipbrokers out there. Information flows extremely quickly um, and very broadly. So we kind of know what market rates are. Um, but there is inevitably a bit of a tussle between owner and, and charter, and you end up with something that you agree in terms of rate and duration. So who, who do you compete against? Every other container ship that's, that, that's out there. Are, now, there, are I, there people in your business that are in that leasing business that are kind of in that flex business that, that you're in? Yes. I mean, uh, there are just over 5,000 container ships in the world. Uh, roughly half of them are owned by owners like us, so two and a half thousand broadly spread. Some are on very long-term charters, some are on short-term charters. So it's a pretty fragmented industry, hence the availability of decent market information. So uh, just real quick here in 30 seconds, what are you most concerned about with respect to global growth, or do you think it's just smooth sailing ahead, so to speak? Pardon my pun. It, it won't be smooth sailing. Um, <laughs> for 20 years in the industry, I've known that. Um, but we're, we're looking forward with confidence. There will be hiccups. Um, yeah, we're, we're in a bit of a seasonal downturn now. We expect things to pick up come, uh, come late February, early March. A seasonal downturn in industry. Um, interesting. Uh, Ian Weber, thank you so much for joining us. Ian is the Chief Executive Officer of Global Ship Lease. The symbol is GSL on your Bloomberg terminal. He's based in London, but he joins us today in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. So unless you're a Patriots fan, you probably didn't find last night's 13-3 uh, to 3 Patriots win over the uh, Rams a uh, very scintillating t television. But the real question for Madison Avenue is how did it do in ratings and how did the advertisers fare? So to give us some color on that, we bring in John Swallen. John is a chief research officer from North America for Cantar Media. Uh, he's based in Europe and joins us on the phone. So again, John, not the uh, most exciting of games, arguably, but um, what did you think of the ads and any winners and losers you saw? Well, you're right. It wasn't the most exciting game on the field, but that's why we have the advertising bowl as a backup. Um, and every year the advertisers do their best to entertain fans during the breaks in the action. So did they Last win? Was... Did they do a good job of it? I don't know. Um, late in the game, I heard Tony Roma. I recall Tony Roma saying, it hasn't been pretty, and I think that comment might apply to some of the advertising as well. Um, but by and large, I mean, there were a, a handful of, of winners in the, in the game, um, certainly Budweiser, um, which was the top advertiser in the game, uh, spent about $66 million to, uh, to run spots in the game promoting its, uh, its different beer brands. 
and many of those I think were favorably received by the um, by the uh, by the viewing audience. Uh, clever, Not by the corn original, lobby. Not by the corn and, lobby. So much. Uh, and extending their dilly dilly franchise. <laughs> All right. So we had uh, Dilly Dilly, uh, although the, the corn lobby is pretty upset with Budweiser today, I believe, right? That, that's right, because they were touting that uh, they're, I guess, corn syrup free, maybe? Exactly. And I people didn't, didn't realize that. As a Budweiser even, drinker, I wasn't even aware. <laughs> but most people didn't realize that corn syrup was used to brew beer in the first place. But, you know, I, I got to say, I was looking actually at some uh, Cantor Medias of some of your research, and I was really interested in the fact that the ads paid for by these brands, the total amount of time that they had was the lowest since 2010, with the rest being taken up by network promos and NFL promotions, et cetera. Uh, what do you make of that? I make that um, it's a supply and demand marketplace. And the fact that there was slightly less paid commercial time, to me, is an indication of uh, a, a relative lack of demand. Um, I think the game was still very well received by advertisers, and many of them took advantage. But I think there was maybe a swing of a minute and a half to two minutes of commercial time that in previous years would have been paid that this time was um, used by the network or by the NFL instead. So, John, we saw that CBS charged, I think I saw uh, between 5.1 and 5.3 million for their average 30 second spot. That was, I think, kind of flattish maybe with the prior year Super Bowl. Has are these 30 second spots, have they plateaued? Have they hit a peak, do you think? Um. I think so. I mean, it certainly gets harder to raise prices once you're above that $5 million threshold. The, you know, the, the difficulty that CBS had in selling spots in this game and the fact that they were still selling spots within 24 hours of kickoff um, is an indication, I think, that you know, price is a, a barrier for, for more and more advertisers. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it's, still a very large, it's still a very large viewing audience, um, and there's still advertisers that will gravitate towards the Super Bowl but I think increasingly we're going to see fewer and fewer of those small upstart brands that are you know, used to Super Bowl to try and break through, make a big impression. I think they are an endangered species. You know, John, I, people talk about how this is the lowest scoring Super Bowl ever and that it also probably had a decline in viewership. And I'm just wondering, you know, Paul was asking about whether the 30-second spot is kind of on its deathbed. Or have we seen the peak in prices for Super Bowl ads? Um, I don't know that we've seen a peak. Um, I think certainly if it continues to increase in future years, it will be at a very low rate. Uh, I mean, over the last 10 years, the price of the Super Bowl ad doubled. Um, we're not going to, certainly not going to see that over the next 10 years. So John, given that maybe, you know, these networks have kind of maybe seen some peak pricing or maybe the growth rates will be a little bit lower than what they have been over the last 10 years, is it still worth it for them to be into the Super Bowl business? It's definitely worth it for the networks, yes. Um, I mean, it's a tremendous promotional platform for them. Um, it does bring in huge revenue, even if the revenue growth slows in future years. There's nothing else out there that brings in nearly as much revenue as the Super Bowl. I mean, to put things in perspective, um, the Super Bowl brings in as much revenue as many small cable networks do in a full year. The Super Bowl does it in one day. Yeah. John Swallen, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. John Swallen, Chief Research Officer for North America at Cantor Media, talking about the Super Bowl and the advertisers that did uh, spend millions and millions of dollars getting that exposure. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.